Hello and welcome to the Argus Metal Movers podcast. I'm Ellie Sakratvala, editor of Argus Metals International, and I'm joined today by Alex Kruitz, who's dialing in from sunny California for us. Um, Alex is the managing director of Patriot Industrial Partners, uh, an aerospace and defense advisory firm that elevates business performance by focusing on manufacturing strategy, value creation, and business transformation. He's been a consultant for airframe OEMs, tier ones, and tier twos on operational turnarounds and for private equity groups on value creation, planning, and execution. Uh, before starting Patriot Industrial Partners, Alex worked for United Technologies, uh, GKN Aerospace, and various aerospace and defense businesses in roles of general management, operations, supply chain, and program management. His experience spans across engines, APUs, structures, composites, and large complex assemblies. So he really brings a wealth of experience to us uh, today for this podcast. Uh, for now, we'll be discussing the recovery of aerospace manufacturing after an incredibly tough two years. Uh, and we'll be looking at some of the major challenges facing supply chains as they ramp back up. Uh, so, Alex, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you with us. Thanks, Ali. I really appreciate being here. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, to kick off, I wonder, could you just summarize for us where you see the main challenges and pain points for aerospace supply chains at this stage in the recovery? We've been hearing a lot of headlines and, and, and big numbers coming out of some of the aerospace companies about their ramp up plans uh, for this year and next. Where are we at and where are the current pain points? Yeah, so I think just broadly, if we just kind of look at uh, just market drivers, uh, narrow body is is obviously is hot. Point to point, you know, more flexibility uh, is a macroeconomic driver. Uh, wide bodies are a bit depressed right now and probably will be for some years. Uh, you know, international travel is down, uh, and there's probably an oversaturation of those. Uh, and, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. And and defense markets overall are doing well. Um, unfortunately, with some of the circumstances in East, Eastern Europe, it drives some of those um, called practices in defense spending um, that uh, that that uh, are cyclical in nature, and and obviously that looks like it's in an upswing now. So those are three kind of generalized uh, macroeconomic things that themes that we'll kind of dive into a little bit lower. But if you go down a level below that, so like the OEMs and tier ones, right? So you have the Boeing's, the Airbuses uh, on the OEM and tier ones, uh, the Raytheons, Saffrons, uh, Spirits, etc. Um, I think. You know, some of the challenges that they're looking at is kind of their manufacturing strategy. Uh, they're looking at make buy analysis uh, uh, in 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 how what they do in house, uh, where they're vertically integrated, where they have supply chain, and some of that strategy, and also inventory variations. Right, supply uh, and demand signals that we'll talk about are pretty sporadic right now, or are pretty up and down, um, and. And and during the uh, you know COVID downturn and some of the stops and starts uh, there has been suppliers and parts of the supply chain that have been overheated for a variety of reasons and others that have stopped or were slowed down tremendously so there's inventory levels that are um, at various levels for the OEMs at tier ones and also they have to do supplier health analysis right there's a lot of challenges in the supply chain so I think challenges wise you know inventory variations make by analysis and supplier health for the OEM tier ones, if you go into the tier twos, we talked um, we talked in the past about what I call the the tier two crunch. Um, you know, operating margins for tier twos are going to be um, uh, are are depressed and and on a downward 
um, trend, unfortunately. And really that comes to because the OEMs and tier ones, they typically have a three to five year uh, contractual alignment with the uh, with their their customers, the OEMs and tier ones. And usually the tier threes, which are their sub tier suppliers, um, have shorter contracting periods. So uh, there's going to be some uh, price variations there and, and definitely see that uh, with some challenges in their operating margins. And then I think lastly, uh, but not least, is the tier threes, right? Smaller machine shops, composite businesses, um, component suppliers, um, the cash conversion cycle. We'll talk a little bit about that, Ellie, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The cash conversion cycle, right? From when they uh, uh, get their order and buy their material all the way to invoicing, which longer payment terms. Um, it's going to be harder to ramp up. And so I think that's that's a key theme for the industry. It's um, without being callous and say this, it's 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 easy to reduce costs and, and downsize. It's a lot harder to uh, ramp back up uh, because of cash liquidity and some of those challenges, right? CapEx and such. So we could talk about all that. So that's kind of my long winded answer of kind of where the challenges are in each of those segments. I'd really like to pick up more on this point to do with uh, inventory management, which I realize can mean so many things within aerospace. It can be the components, the parts, um, but then also from, say, the Argus perspective, we're often looking much more upstream uh, toward the various metals and the raw materials coming in. Um, and I wonder if we can can look a bit more closely at some of the disruptions and issues that have been hitting along the metal uh, streams. We've had enormous volatility uh, for so many reasons the past two years, the shipping crisis, Russia, Ukraine. So we have a lot of metals tighter supply right now, growing demand from multiple industries, not just aerospace, it's batteries and so on. Um, and, uh, and like you say, these problems with the credit lines, how are the aerospace companies uh, navigating all of this? I mean, if we zoom in on some of the particular metals that have really been in, in turmoil recently, uh, I wonder if you can drill down a bit further for us. I mean, if we start with nickel, uh, how do you see this really playing out for aerospace uh, as a challenge? Uh, I think um, if, if I can just take a step back um, on the inventory management side, looking at the OEM and tier ones, you'll hear a lot of them that have TMX agreements and stocking agreements um, and they're well positioned, right? And I think it's good to kind of understand those tiers um, before I get into maybe the specific metals. Uh, you know, those tier twos can buy in bulk, but they have longer lead times. And really those tier threes are on the spot buys um, where they don't have that volume to uh, to be able to go, uh, you know, purchase from the mills. So they have higher costs, uh, have to go to distributors and such, right? So um, I think that's good to kind of put that into perspective. Now, I think on the uh, nickel, obviously we've seen a lot of volatility there, um, you know, uh, from from my perspective, at least some of it looks a little bit like, um, the financial markets, right, and some uh, distress there, um, but there still is a, um, a deep demand uh, that's happening for nickel, and that really affects the engines uh, sector, right? So, um, where I think the nickel challenges and that cost increase is really going to affect the engine suppliers uh, in those engine companies or even component suppliers is the razor blade model, and that's, you know, for those that maybe don't know that or aren't as familiar with it, um, you know, razor, uh, you know, the, the actual razor handle is sold, um, at, you know, at a loss because the razor blade companies uh, make it on that uh, on the replacements of those razor blades. The engines are the same way. They sell engines typically at losses and they're going to get their um, aftermarket revenues that are uh, that, that are 
directly profitable on replacements, on uh, engine visits uh, in, in the uh, maintenance repair and overhaul the uh, MRO market. So I think that as nickel prices increase for engine suppliers, and there's also some um, specialty alloys uh, that uh, are, are you know high temperature alloys, also for uh, that are non-nickel related for engines. Um, that's going to put more pressure on the traditional what they call the razor blade or the engine model, um, where they sell at OEM losses or or very little uh, you know margins uh, and hope to make it on the aftermarket side. Um, and that's been the way. So that I think that's going to be a challenged model going forward. Um, that's going to uh, probably be revisited uh, to some extent. Um, I think aluminum. Um, a lot of that is the smaller suppliers, smaller machine shops, and it feeds up into the structures, right? So into you know tier one structures groups, whether it's the spirits or you know the heavies in Japan, or um, you know into the uh, middle market suppliers that go to you know business jets and such. Um, so there are uh, there are challenges from a margins perspective, both in those smaller suppliers, those machining as well as structures. They already have smaller margins, right? So you know, say that smaller margins um, and profit margins, so therefore higher costs, right? Inflationary costs, whether it's material or labor, uh, that's also a challenge, uh, is going to put continued pressure on those low margins and and create, you know, uh, you know, some challenges in the ramp up. And I think lastly in the metals market, which is probably on everybody's mind, is the titanium, right? Um, you know, obviously Russia has a deep expertise in the titanium um, you know, forgings uh, arena, right? Uh, near net forgings, especially for the 787 and some of the wider body programs. Um, so, of course, you got the rare earth materials and the mills, um, but the actual manufacturing uh, portion of those forges is what I call black art, right? It, it's very complex, takes many years to develop uh, that expertise. And even as they're developed, uh, there's what we call in the industry a high yield, right? That that, that says uh, uh, there's uh, uh, a yield issue that sometimes you have to uh, make, uh, you know, make three to get two or sometimes make one, you know, uh, you know, make two to get one. Um, there's different uh, yield patterns on different, um, but uh, that takes many years to perfect. Uh, so you don't have, a, you know, porosity and cracks and, and all these other imperfections at such large uh, components. So I think there's going to be some sourcing challenges for the OEMs and tier ones. Um, you know, based upon uh, the concentration of tit not only the titanium materials, but the manufacturing processes within uh, Russia uh, currently. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned Russia, Ukraine, and of course, that is just one of a very long raft of huge macroeconomic and geopolitical disruptors uh, that the metals industry and uh, the aerospace industry have been uh, caught between in the past two years. And at the moment, it doesn't seem like people think uh, the risks are going down. Uh, certainly when we talk to people across the metal industry, there is this continued sense of uncertainty, a real wariness about trying to forecast or trying to really predict where we're going next. Um, so we seem to be in this environment of overwhelming data points, continued risk. Um, how does a supply chain as complicated as aerospace navigate this continued climate of high uncertainty and try to mitigate some of those risks? So I think that um, 
globalization, uh, you know, is a, is a term that we use that's very relevant to aerospace and, and defense. And I think that there's probably going to be more of a regionalization approach. So really around manufacturing hubs, Mobile, Alabama, Dallas, uh, you know, Texas, uh, Everett, Washington, um, you know, Savannah, Georgia, uh, maybe in the East Coast, uh, in the Northeast of, of uh, around Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so those are, you know, as we start looking at regionalization of how do they pull in work closer to their hub so there's less um, international influence, there's maybe less logistical influence, um, there are concentration of uh, strategic initiatives. So I think we're going to see more reliance on like the USM, uh, uh, USMCA, right, United States, Mexico, Canada agreement um, versus maybe the BRIC approach, which was the Brazil, Russia, India, China. Um, you know, so that's, again, that kind of globalization approach versus more regionalization uh, kind of continent. As I think, you know, even like Toulouse and um, and uh, to some of the manufacturing hubs that where, you know, uh, aircraft and engines are produced. So I, uh, I th I'd say that that's probably big, uh, big pushes regionalization versus, um, you know, kind of globalization efforts that we'll see. And how do you see in the in the nearer term? You mentioned uh, earlier some issues to do with cash flow and credit lines. Uh, and the time lags uh, that can take place, you know, these these various different parts of the supply chain, ordering the material, uh, and when that is meant to then be converted into some kind of deliverable or cash. Uh, and of course, now the US, for example, in a much tougher climate than it used to be with regard to, uh, you know, the removal of these uh, government support structures that were in place during COVID. Can you comment a bit on, on how you see that challenge evolving, uh, I suppose, specifically within the US uh, in terms of the credit lines and the challenges for finance? Yeah, so let's start with that. Um, the OEMs and tier ones have access to capital, whether it's uh, private markets and, and equity raise or you know, getting credit facilities because their risk profile is lower. They have diversification amongst uh, commercial and defense, and they are on many different programs and they have size. So uh, banking and, and uh, are more confident, but as you start going down to the supply chain into the, the smaller businesses and especially businesses that are sub $100 million in revenue uh, that are critical to the supply chain and to, uh, you know, to the ecosystem, um, those credit facilities start to get um, more expensive. They're harder to get because the risk profile is much greater for those companies that maybe aren't as diversified, have some customer concentration. So it's more expensive, harder to get. And oh, by the way, they might have tapped on those credit lines during the downturn, right? So they may not even have uh, uh, access available. So that then leads into the liquidity situation that um, at, during the ramp up, uh, what people maybe don't um, fully see, uh, especially with longer lead times, where it would have taken a supplier maybe two months to get material. Now it's three months because it's just longer. And then they have uh, three months of manufacturing time and, you know, with all their chip cutting and outside processes. And so that's already six months. And then most of these suppliers have net 90 or sometimes even net 120 payment terms with, with customers. So it could be literally uh, from 
from from quote to cash, it might be a nine month cycle for some of these smaller suppliers. So if you pair together their liquidity, uh, sorry, their access to capital, um, that might be a little bit tighter or a little bit more expensive or not available. And and now they're trying to ramp up and have this, I'll call it just around six to nine month cash conversion cycle. That could be very tough for the smaller suppliers to be able to field. So um, it's definitely a watch item, I would say. And do you think some of those stress points may feed into that theme that you mentioned just a moment ago about uh, supply chains maybe changing in structure a little bit, a bit more consolidation, a bit more M&A. Do you see that all feeding together a bit? Yeah, so I think the M&A side, I think we're going to see some of the larger companies, what we would say optimizing their portfolio will probably spin off or um, you know, divest some of their non-core assets, right? So uh, we may start to see some of those go into the private equity, um, uh, into the private equity world. Uh, and I think there'll be some consolidation uh, among some smaller suppliers that need to just by nature of staying uh, afloat and 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 looking at the new. Uh, I think there's also going to be a concentration, uh, some strategic sourcing initiatives that, that companies uh, that companies are going through, and, and obviously we're, you know, working with some companies uh, on those strategic initiatives uh, in consolidation of their supply chain. When you're looking at um, how many suppliers you have, um, what's your spend, uh, what are the, the the critical places. So where suppliers really benefit is when they have volume, and in these lower right now lower production volumes, um, you know, putting that together in key suppliers helps them and helps the company. Uh, that uh, is placing out the work. So uh, those are a couple trends, right? Divestitures, probably some consolidation in the smaller tiers and um, and strategic uh, sourcing initiatives that are going to be key for the OEMs and tier ones. I wonder if you can uh, cast your eye forward a little bit further. We're obviously used to major industries like aerospace um, having cycles, ups and downs and so on. We're obviously going through quite an extraordinary cycle at the moment. How long do you think it's going to take before the aerospace uh, supply chains return to something that we could consider a new normal? Uh, how long do you think it's going to take to come out of this transition phase? Yeah, a lot of people talk about the new normal. Um, it's probably going to be a good 10 to 12 months um, to smooth everything out. And I say that with the caveat that there's no other major exogenous effects, right? You know, or, or events, you know, globally and such, right? So, um, you know, obviously we just last week just very new had contraction in 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 uh, uh, GDP, right? And if there's another quarter after that, does that lead to recessionary, uh, uh, you know, recessionary trend? I don't know. It doesn't feel like it, but um, you know, that could definitely affect how people, uh, how those cycles are going and such. So, so again, with, with everything saying that the trajectory, you know, that that's an anomaly and, and we continue our trajectory of recovery and strong, you know, strong demand, um, it's probably a good 10 to 12 months to smooth out a lot of these issues that, that we're seeing right now. Um, but again, that all changes if uh, those exogenous uh, events or, you know, some type of recessionary trend, uh, you know, takes place. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people this time last year were feeling rather more optimistic that we might be uh, coming out of the woods by this stage. Uh, and it just takes, you know, one extra wave, one extra variant, and, and suddenly we seem to be set back yeah. quite a bit. Um, so much of what we talk about with aerospace tends to be focused on the US, Europe, of course. Uh, I wonder if we could cast our eye a bit further east and, and, and get some comments from you on China. Uh, everyone's watching that. Uh, area very closely uh, as China tries to uh, to ramp up and modernize its own aerospace manufacturing hub. Um, how do you assess those targets and what impact do you think uh, the, the evolution of China's aerospace industry is going to have on the wider supply chain? Yeah, so um, China will definitely get there. So right now we have a, a duopoly between uh, Boeing and Airbus, uh, but China will get there and produce uh, aircraft uh, aircraft that are competitive. Um, but probably it's it's a good decade or two decades away. Uh, it'll be initially, uh, and they'll be reliant on Western hardware, right, um, and some of the older technology. But over a period of time, uh, they they will get there to uh, develop their own. Uh, technology uh, and become a triopoly, um, you know, and and compete more with uh, Airbus and Boeing. Um, it is uh, it is interesting to see their their backlog uh, with those uh, two airframe OEMs. Um, there are some deliveries still to be taken, but in a couple of years, those deliveries definitely drop off. So I think that right now. It appears that they're banking on that the, for example, the Comac C919 is going to be more readily readily available to their domestic market um, than what's uh, qualified right now. Um, it's not. Uh, I don't believe it's still approved by uh, the CAAC, the uh, Chinese Regulatory Authority. But I think they're probably very close to that and uh, for domestic use. Um, but the question will be: Is can they? Uh, ramp up the amount of supply needed to satisfy their um, their uh, domestic demand, I think is yet to be seen. But I think if we think uh, macro-wise or long-term, uh, they definitely will get there, uh, but uh, are going to be reliant in the short term on Western technology for sure. And I wonder if we could uh, finish up on a slightly more uh, positive note. It's been obviously an incredibly tough time for so many uh, companies in this space and, and individuals uh, in the aerospace industry. Um, what are your uh, positive takeaways? I mean, this is obviously a very grueling period. Are there any positive learnings and evolutions that you see uh, in the aerospace industry as it moves forward, as it you know, looks more closely at costs, at synergies, at structure? Uh, what do you think of the are the, are the great opportunities on the horizon uh, for the aerospace industry as we move out of this tough period? Yeah, a couple of things. I think uh, number one is, uh, you know, uh, improved technology uh, coming in through new market entrants. There's a lot of capital coming in uh, and there's uh, some verticals being established with air mobility, uh, space, uh, both space travel, satellites and um some of that. So that's uh, that's really good to see some of that influx of uh, new technology capital and entrance. I think number two is uh, 
companies, uh, both public, uh, publicly traded, uh, privately held and private equity backed, are all investing and improving. Uh, not all, but I would say uh, there are a lot that are trying to improve their manufacturing uh, techniques, uh, you know, trying to move into like industry 4.0 um, and trying to improve their equipment and uh, overall uh, kind of work uh, workplace uh, for their employees. I think number three, um, there's a uh, customer focus uh, that's uh, that's really um, enhancing in the industry right now. Some environmental, you know, SAP, other engine um, efficiencies and some environmental uh, improvements you made, but also the customer experience, right? So if we look at uh, some of the new interiors and some of the advancements being made of um, that's always been, and it's it's great to see that uh, airlines and, and OEMs and manufacturers are really continuing to make the the flight experience, uh, you know, exceptional in new aircraft, right? So that's exciting to see that um, that that can evolve. So I, I definitely see some some uh, some fascinating uh, things uh, that are are taking place. Yeah, you mentioned technology. Uh, one final curveball: electrified planes. Uh, are they are they coming anytime soon? What are your expectations on that one? I would say that there's a market for it um, where maybe uh, what we would call a rural uh, package deliveries or rural uh, medical services, you know, in, you know, in points of Midwest that have uh, very long distances uh, that maybe it's more economical to use one of the is maybe a helicopter or uh, faster than ground transportation. Um, but do we see it in the city? I think that there's challenges there. Uh, and by no means am I an expert, but I would say um, that, you know, uh, the size and, and duration of, of battery uh, is still, um, you know, a challenge uh, noise, you know, for populations. Um, every one of those have to be manned by a pilot right now, right? If pilot, uh, you know, pilot requirements change, um, and so utilization and, and cost per 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 seat is 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 still probably pretty high. Infrastructure where they can be charged, um, are they going to be? Uh, how are they going to be serviced? Do you replace the parts or scrap the whole plane, uh, or scrap the whole uh, electric? Uh, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, EV tall. So, I think there's a lot of uh, challenges to be um, to be worked through. So I think that there's some markets for it, but I don't uh, necessarily see the larger market opportunity right now that others are investing in. Um, so I, I think it's yet to be seen. So I'm, I would say a bit on the fence looking at all the challenges. Maybe one to watch uh, over the next few years. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I think we're fresh out of time, so uh, I need to draw this discussion to a close. But Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Metal Movers podcast. We hope to see you again next time. Great. Thanks, Ellie, for having me. Talk soon.